The modern motorcycle is reliable and designed to take a lot of abuse. You can ride it a long way without having to do very much to it at all. But your body is not the same. And if you're not healthy and you're not physically fit, I mean rider fit, then you're going to find the weakest link is you. Today we have Tom Rick, who is an exercise specialist at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. And he's got some great ideas for, well, you could say a workout for us riders that you're going to love. He's also going to explain why bone density is so important for you as a rider and what you can do about your aging bones. As well, today we have our third episode of our Rider Skills segment, where Brett Tax, a professional rider trainer from Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, comes into the studio and gives us tips on how to become better riders. Today, we tackle obstacles. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barnes. Alan Carl. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tax. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ruff. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Spencer Conway, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. So they know what you need when you're exploring the world. Visit them at cyclepump.com. That's cyclepump.com. Tom Rick is an exercise specialist at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a certified personal trainer, and peak Pilates instructor. He's been working as a personal trainer for over 10 years now, but he's also an avid motorcyclist. Tom has been riding since about the age of two when his father first put him on the back of his 1974 Honda CB250 in a car seat. But Tom now rides a 1995 BMW K75S, and of course that's all on his own. Tom is currently working on a book called Strength and Fitness for the Motorcyclist. But today we're going to talk about getting fit, rider fit, and we're also going to talk about a bunch of other things, including bone density and why bone density is so important to you as a rider and what you can do to reverse the effects of age on your bones. All right, so I'm Tom, Rick. I'm from Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm an exercise specialist at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Tom, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Now, I understand you ride a 1995 BMW K75S. That's the first question I have for you. I know we're going to talk about exercise here. We're going to talk about fitness, but I want to talk about your bike first. Why do you ride that bike? Well, I started off really kind of getting away um, 
from home, I guess, kind of adventure riding with a 1982 uh, Honda Silverwing. So I used to, I linked up with a couple guys that, that happened to ride BMWs and they said, you know what? Silverwing's great. It's, it's, it's working really well for you. However, you know, have you thought about a K75? And during that time I was a poor college student. And so that kind of became my, you know, my next go-to motorcycle. So graduated, started a job, got some income. And then I ended up with that, that K75. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know if BMW might give me a call after this, this interview, but I haven't really found anything else so far that I've liked better. So I've had that for a couple of years. The K75 has a reputation for being bulletproof, right? The engine's fantastic. Yeah, and I've found that uh, so far. I'll knock on some wood here. Yeah, I haven't really had to do too much, and I've got about 85,000 miles on it. So uh, in the last three years, I've put about 12,000 every year. So it's been well, it's been good to me. I always like it when I hear somebody who's bought a bike and just keeps it for many, many years. I, I think that says something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've got some good German heritage in me too as well, so that might help. And it's tough for me to part with my money. So until I, I see something shiny and new, I'll probably keep it for a couple more years. Sorry, tough to part with your money. Is that, are you saying you're cheap? Um, <laughs> I would say frugal is, <laughs> is the more ideal. That's, yeah. that's what everyone who is tough with parting with their money says. They always use that word frugal. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if I spend a little less money on the bike, that means more money to spend in the gas tank so I can, I can really enjoy the countryside. Well, Tom, what we're going to talk about today is is fitness. Now, some people may cringe when they hear this because no one likes to get out there and, and get fit. Or I shouldn't say no one because some people think uh, that it feels great. And, I, and I, I'm sure that is the best attitude is to feel that exercise is good for you. But let's face it, most people look at exercise as a downer, something that they're going to have to push themselves to do. But the great thing about what we're going to talk about is you have an idea here that um, people don't have to put that much work into. We're talking 20 to 30 minutes here. So let's just start off by talking about fitness and what it'll do for us for riding our motorcycles. Sure, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, a lot of people in their mind, you know, as soon as I say fitness, they think that cover model, they think that ripped person. And I'm talking about, you know, just general health and fitness. So something that's going to be good enough to kind of extend your life. When we talk about riding, you know, there's actually been some good research that's come out too as well about mortality risk. So people that have a higher BMI or a higher body mass index actually have a higher risk of potentially injury and, and unfortunately death um, because they've got more mass if they were getting into an accident. It's a lot easier to control a motorcycle if you weigh a little bit less. So if you're a little bit more into your ideal body weight, you just have less to, to throw around, whether you're on single track or you know a muddy road in the middle of you know Russia or you know, riding in California. Let's talk about BMI for a minute. Just explain what body mass index is. Sure. So body mass index, it's not the best calculation. It basically takes a look at your height and your weight and puts that into a formula that gives you a rough estimate of you, you know, kind of comparative to the general population. So a lot of physicians use it. A lot of, um, you know, researchers end up using it because it's very simple to collect. I just need your height. I need your weight. That puts you into those different categories. When we talk about kind of risk of, let's say, type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure, generally somebody with a BMI of 25 or 30 is going to get you into that higher risk. When you're when you're into that 30 category, your physician's going to probably start to say, hey, Jim, we need to start working, you know, worrying about your risk of, of these different ailments. We need to start worrying about your weight. It, it's best to find your overall body fat. 
So you can do that a number of ways. Go to the local gym. Some personal trainers are really good at at using a pinch test. You can go to your local university and get a DEXA done, um, which essentially takes a look at at your overall body fat using x-rays. Or you can dunk yourself into a pool of water and find your body fat. That's going to be a little bit better. It's going to be a little bit you know, deeper into, you know, kind of the health and fitness realm of knowing exactly what you are. But probably the, the you know, the best thing that most people have in their house, probably a couple of them, is going to be a mirror. So how do you look in the mirror? Are you asking me? <laughs> not, not specifically <laughs> I, I was going to say but, totally ripped. Uh, I'm not sure I yeah, don't understand maybe. the question. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great way you can kind of gauge, hey, you know, if I can't see my belt line anymore, I'm not looking that good in the mirror. I don't look like I looked like 20 years ago. It's probably a good indicator. Hey, it's time to to focus on your fitness a little bit. And really, even if we're even if we're thin and and you don't look like you're you're packing a lot of extra weight, you still need to have a certain level of fitness. That's correct. I mean, you know, it's, you could be model thin, but if I asked you to, to let's say lug your motorcycle for a mile out of the jungle, it's going to be tough. So focusing, you know, on your cardiovascular health, your strength, your ability to move, you know, weight around is going to be very important. And really the third thing is your flexibility and your mobility. So I might be able to touch my toes, but can I do that a couple different times? Can I do that with, you know, let's say a 25 pound uh, part that just fell off my motorcycle? Can I lift that guy up and put it on whatever I need to? So there's a lot of different things we want to focus on. So we can look in the mirror, we can tell that we need exercise, and probably everybody does. I mean, let's face it, if you're not out doing some sort of regular exercise, you're going to need it. Isn't that the way to think of it? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, your body is really good at adapting. So if you don't go out and kind of push yourself every once in a while, it's going to get really comfortable with sitting on the couch. Now, you'd mentioned before about bone density and and how it affects our health. It does. You know, unfortunately, some of us are going to have get-offs through, you know, throughout our time. And, and if you're kind of riding right on that edge, you're probably going to have a get-off. Hopefully, it's nothing too too drastic. We have a tendency to lose a couple percentage of, of our bone density as we age. Exercise has been shown to do really well at maintaining that. But unfortunately, let's say that I take a 30-year hiatus from exercise. I don't have any impact on my body. Yeah, I get out and walk a little bit. But overall, I'm losing a couple percentage points every single year of my bone density. And it's really difficult to help strengthen up those bones after I've lost it. So then your doctor is going to start talking to you about osteopenia and osteoporosis. You're going to have you know, essentially brittle and frail bones. But if I take care of myself, once again, doing small little things here and there, staying consistent with that, I can keep those bones healthy and vibrant and prevent, you know, if I tip over on my one more cycle, prevent having a huge catastrophic event. When you say lose a couple of percent per year, you're talking about from uh, what, age 20? Yeah, um, your peak bone density for most people happens about 25. And then after that, you know, if you don't work on it and maintain it, you have a tendency to lose it. So when you say work to maintain it, what if somebody's just physical? They do a lot of outdoor stuff, um, uh, maybe not necessarily weightlifting, but maybe they're cutting mm-hmm. wood and doing that sort of thing. Does that help maintain your bone density? That does help. The way your bones actually work is they're only going to continue to be strong if you stress them. So if you're stacking wood, that's a stress on your bones, or if you're lifting weights in the weight room. So it's a, it's a use it or lose it thing. It is. Just like your cardiovascular, just like your strength, if you're not continually using it, it's going to end up, unfortunately, going away. 
I remember reading um, that uh, there's there's older people now that are doing weightlifting, and they've done experiments with 70 or 80 year olds where they've started to do weightlifting and found that they actually increased their bone mass and were basically reverting their their ability to lift to when they were much younger. Have you heard about that? Yeah, so I've got that same stat actually here. So I have a women's in their 60s and 70s. Um, they ended up doing just six weeks of weight training twice a week. They had a 52% increase in their overall strength. And that put them on par with ladies who were 35 years younger. So, you know, we, we typically think as we age, it's just, it's life. You know, I'm going to get weak. I'm going to get frail. I'm going to end up in a nursing home. But We've been shown the opposite. You know, you can still build strength. You can still build muscle. And you can do the things you want well into your 80s, 90s, and 100s. And and that you see in if you go to other countries and you'll see when someone does a, a trip around the world and they post photographs of different people in different countries, and you'll see some very old people doing very physical things. They seem to defy the uh, the laws that govern us as far as aging. And and really that must be what it is, is they're active. They're, they're doing things physical because that's what their life is about, is about doing things physical. They don't have computers to sit behind. They don't have a job where they're, where they're sitting around. They're out there maybe getting water or getting food or doing whatever it is they do for a living physically. And it's it seems like it's better for them. Yeah, it's a much harder lifestyle. They live a lot longer. And the one thing that probably, you know, if you took a look at all of those people that are physical into the 80s, 90s, and 100s, it's consistency. So they've done it basically from day one. You know, they just they didn't have a life of leisure until they were 65 and then decide, well, I'm going to go out and start carrying my own water. They've been carrying their water since, you know, they could basically walk. So little things, once again, consistently over time, challenging yourself. Someone may find it a little bit alarming thinking about the fact that they're they're losing muscle mass, they're losing bone mass. Um, basically, they're, they've let themselves fall apart because you, you've said about consistencies many times now. What happens if that is the case? They're, they've arrived at 50 years old. They haven't been consistent. They haven't been exercising. Can they recoup that uh, like you were talking about in the experiment there with the, the women? Yeah, they can. You know, it's going to take some time. You know, you don't just don't wake up one day and you're 250 pounds and, and you graduate high school at 150. It's going to take a little time for that weight to come off or to you to rebuild that strength. But if you take a, a let's say you take a, a muscle out of a, an 85-year-old and you compare it to a 20-year-old, you know, on under a microscope, they work the same. They look the same. You can still build muscle even as you age. And you can still lose weight as you age too as well. So nobody should, you know, kind of give up hope that, well, I'm too far gone. I have no, you know, I have no more hope. That's a good sign. So that, so there is hope for anyone finding themselves in that situation right now. Interesting you mentioned about the, the muscle not being any different from when you're younger. Is it not more difficult as we get older to build muscle mass and bone mass? Do we not have to work harder at it than what we would have when we were younger? Well, especially because we have a tendency to lose bone. So that's the one thing, you know, that you, you are going to have to try to maintain. And, and adding that back is the, the tough thing. Maintaining, very easy, but adding it back is tough. So you, you have to make up for what you're losing and you have to add at that point. That This is what makes it so difficult? Right. That's exactly right. So, you know, I've lost 50%. I got to get back to there. And then I want to hope try, of course, get 50% better. So it's a lot. It's a mm. big, big piece that you have to work at. The other thing about muscles, when we're younger, you know, especially us guys, we've got a lot of testosterone floating around. And so it's really easy for us to put on muscle mass. Women, not so much. And probably I should say, mention this too as well. I always tell my female clients, 
you know, don't tell your husbands this, but you actually probably should be spending more time in the gym lifting weights because you're at a much higher risk for osteoporosis. Now, most women, unfortunately, just don't have enough free testosterone that they're going to walk out of the gym looking like a female version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's just not going to happen. But the results that they're going to get from lifting weights and challenging themselves that way is probably going to be almost as good, if not better, when it comes to maintaining their bone mass uh, density than guys will be. But you know, as we age, both females and males are going to lose that testosterone. It just becomes a little bit more difficult to put on muscle mass. So a lot of unseen things there. I think the the bone density, I mean, for obvious reasons, it's very important for us, but especially for motorcyclists, especially for anyone riding an adventure bike. If you've got a big adventure bike, you're you're muscling around. We certainly don't want our bones to get to the point where we're we're falling down and, and breaking our bones um, just from lack of density, especially when it's it's not only reversible but it's preventable. Yeah, and that's that's a, you know, let's say I'm I'm out enjoying a ride and I happen to fall over. I mean. I could shake it off and continue riding or I could end up in the hospital. You know, I mean, some of the worst cases are people fall over and break their hip, especially as we age. That's, that's one of the most drastic things that could happen. And the, uh, you know, the recovery rate from somebody breaking their hip, especially when they're older is, is slim, very slim. So why is it some people seem to be naturally fitter than others? It seems like they don't have to do much to it. They just have a different physique. So 30% you could blame on your parents. So 30% of how you look and how muscular you are and how your cardiovascular response is, is a direct result of your parents. But the other 70% is the little choices that you and I make day in and day out that has that really add up to that 100% how I look, feel, and can perform. You know, I have four kids. I don't want them blaming me for that 30%. <laughs> but, but what basically what you're saying is, is that you're in control of most of your health. You are. Uh, yeah, it's, it's those little choices that you make day in, day out. Reminds me of another study. Harvard University took a, a look at people who are 85 years and older, and they had them go out and walk just over 30 minutes a day. I think it was a four, four hours per week. And they found that even those 85-year-olds had half the risk of death in the following three years just by going out and going for a gentle walk for 20, 30 minutes a day. There's some research now that says that even just getting up from your desk for a few minutes and moving around is beneficial. I believe it's called NEAT. What is NEAT? NEAT stands for Non-Exercise Activity Thermogenesis. So it's a big, long word uh, that (laughs) essentially means the amount of time that you and I get up and move around through our day. There's been some great research that has been shown that if we can get somewhere between about eight to 10,000 steps throughout our day, that's enough to help kind of stave off a lot more additional things that we wouldn't necessarily garner and gain if we were in the gym. So I just saw some stuff recently that came out from the University of Oklahoma. They fed some people um, a, a great meal, and then they drew their blood. They spun it all out, and it was actually very cloudy. And essentially, what, the reason what made that cloudy was there was a lot of triglycerides or a lot of blood fat that was left over from that meal. They had these same volunteers go for about a 20 or 30-minute walk, and they redrew their blood. They spun out all those red blood cells, and that blood, I could, I could read right through it. And so thinking to yourself, getting up and moving, just a couple minutes here and a couple minutes there, every half an hour or every hour has been shown to have some really good impacts on your overall health. And a lot of the neat research came from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. James Levine, and he found that he took 
people who were lean and people who were obese, and both of them never did structured exercise. So they never went to the gym. And what he found was the lean individuals happened to be lean because they were up on their feet naturally about two and a half hours more throughout the day. So we've talked about you know getting to the gym, getting outside 20 to 30 minutes, but also breaking up your day so that you have a little bit more movement throughout the day it can also have big drastic effects. So you're just talking getting up and moving around. I mean, and, and today, a lot of people end up sitting, we're, we're sitting at computers especially, uh, for long, long periods of time. Just getting up and walking around is enough to break that up. It is, yeah. And there's a lot of different technology you can use. So when I sit at my desk at work, um, I have a little program that essentially reminds me to get up and move around every half an hour. And it's just basically me walking over around my desk and coming back. But even that little bit here and there, you'd be surprised how different I feel at the end of the day in terms of how much more loose I am because I'm not sitting for hours and hours and hours on end, but how drastic of an effect that can have when I track my activity. You mentioned eight to 10,000 steps in a day. How far is that? For most people, it's going to be about four to five miles. You'll see a lot of research that says 10,000 is kind of that magic number, and that's because 10,000 is something that most people are going to have to work a little bit to get to. The 8,000 is is kind of a, a good starting point, and that 10,000 step goal is kind of a stretch goal, if we can say that. And I guess that's where the activity tracker comes in. If, if you wanted to do that, um, you could put that on, and then you would know how many steps you're actually covering. Correct. Yep. So once again, we go back to that. You know, if I asked you, half the people think, yep, I'm getting that in, but only 5% truly are. It's tough to, you know, actually walk and, and count your own steps. I've done a couple of research uh, studies so far when we're actually tracking and clicking individuals for activity trackers. And I got to have a clicker because after about a thousand, I start losing it. Yeah, that would be difficult and, and rather mundane after a while too. But yeah. the, but the thing is, it takes a lot of time to do that too, to devote that time every day to walk that distance. you got to plan that in your schedule. You do. And, you know, sometimes I tell people you either start planning your, your death here or we start planning getting a little bit of activity uh, here and there. It's all about making your life a little bit harder, kind of quote unquote. So maybe I'm going to park a little bit farther away from work. Maybe I'm going to get off if I ride the bus. Maybe if, you know, I'm going to get off a, a station early. Maybe I'm going to walk down the stairs. I know we just had a, a gentleman that came through our program a couple weeks ago and he says, well, I can't really walk upstairs anymore, but I can take the elevator up to my floor that I need to and then walk down. So I always say that you know, walking down steps is like controlled falling. Almost anybody can do it, but you're still moving. You're still getting your steps in. So what would you recommend for uh, some sort of exercise ritual? Sure. For most people, well, let's, if we back up a little bit, just getting the consistency. So, you know, I can give you a high five if you spend two hours once a week in the gym, but you're going to get more bang for the buck getting off the couch, let's say for 10 minutes for six out of the seven days a week, starting really slow, kind of working your way up, kind of your ideal week. If I was going to program something for you, you'd be doing about two to three times a week of resistance training and about two to three times a week of cardiovascular training. And then you'd put some flexibility in there and some mobility in there as you see fit. The nice thing about flexibility and mobility, those are things you could do sitting in front of the in television. You're just sitting there, maybe you're watching your favorite long way around episode, Go ahead and get some couple stretches in. It doesn't take much. And what sort of stretches? I mean, do you have specifics or? Um... 
Sure. I can tell you probably the, the most motorcyclists are going to be very tight in through the chest as well as through the hip flexors. And so your hip flexors are the, are the muscles that bring your knee essentially to your chest. And since we're sitting on the motorcycle with our arms reach out in front of us a lot, we have a tendency to be tight, of course, in our chest. And because we're sitting, those muscles in front of our thighs get really tight. So if you think about sitting on the couch, taking both your arms, kind of wrapping around. So if you had a, a hot date sitting next to you on both sides, wrapping both those arms around the back of the couch be a great chest stretch. Kneeling down on the floor with one foot out in front of the other and pushing the hips forward, kind of reaching both arms up into the air, great hip flexor stretch as well. So probably those two are going to be tight on most people, especially because we also live in a culture where we're doing everything right in front of us. So our, our chest is very tight. Okay. And you, um, you also mentioned that we, we could do these things within 20 to 30 minutes. Is that 20 to 30 minutes each day of exercise? That would be ideal. So for most people, if we talk about their cardiovascular workout, going out and challenging themselves where they're kind of huffing and puffing. So I always tell people we want to get to about a six or a seven, at least out of 10. Now, the more you know, fit you get, obviously, the faster you have to go. So if we just take, let's say, our average 50-year-old, we, we take them off the couch. We'll have them go out for a walk for maybe 20, 30 minutes. It's probably going to be you know, a brisk walk. Now, maybe two to three months down the line, that, that brisk walk really isn't going to feel challenging anymore. It's no longer a six or seven on that scale of difficulty, like up to 10. So now he might have to do some, maybe some uphill walking or maybe some jogging to get to that, you know, where the body has adapted to, to make sure that that works hard enough. So I guess once we set something up, we, we want to keep adding to it. If, you know, if you're going to do stretches and you're going to do um, the maybe five stretches, maybe would it be better to add more every week? there's a continuum of how flexible you want to be. So when we think of flexibility, if you're moving around like Gumby, you, you actually could be potentially too flexible. And so you set yourself up for the risk of injury. So you want to find that comfortable range where, you know, I can open up my arms to their full range of motion. I can reach to both sides of those couches, but I'm not necessarily being able to make dinner behind my back. So working on, on your flexibility just a couple times per week is going to be good. As we get older, we lose our flexibility, don't we? We really have to work to keep it. Yes. Just like we lose our cardiovascular health and our strength. Typically, um, you know, you're actually going to see about somewhere between two to 3% of your muscle, mo muscle mass lost each year of life. So it doesn't take too long. I actually recently just read a statistic out of the, uh, the National Strength and Conditioning Association saying that most people over the age of 70 can no longer lift 10 pounds. So if you put, to put that perspective, let's say that you know, your nice young little uh, grocery bagger when you're at the grocery store, they put uh, a gallon of milk plus a couple of groceries into a grocery bag. If you handed that to the average 70-year-old, they couldn't pick that up. So now think, well, I want to go ride my motorcycle. My motorcycle tips over you know, whether it's in the, the Quick Mart uh, gas station or in the middle of Russia, it's going to be tough to get that back up. Or even just handling it for the day. But And that's why I like the idea that you're saying that the body's adaptable. I mean, not that it's your idea, but I like the idea that the body is adaptable because what you're saying is the, the more we demand of it, the more it's going to give us. Exactly. Just that small little continuum. So maybe today it's, I'm going to lift 10 pounds. And maybe next week it's going to be 11 pounds. Maybe the, the following week, it's going to be 12 pounds. It's those little kind of challenges every single day is going to keep that body young, fresh, 
and being able to do things you want to do. So the key to it is always pushing yourself. We talked about doing repetitions uh, when we were talking earlier. So if if you're lifting weights, you're you're curling weights, you want to curl something, you'd mentioned that you could even do just 10 repetitions. If you're going to do those only 10 repetitions, you want to find a weight that when it comes to that 10th one, it's all you can do. Correct, Jim. So, you know, if I'm going to select a weight to do, let's say I'm going to do a shoulder press, I'm going to bring that weight up over my head. When I'm grabbing that, I want to think of something that if I'm going to do just one set, and we talked earlier that, you know, just one set is actually really good. There's been some good research behind that. So typically people think, oh, I need two to three sets or five sets. I got to spend two hours in the gym. But as long as I grab a weight that's going to barely let me finish that 10th repetition, that's going to be enough to elicit response from my muscles. You don't have to get all uh, excited about it or maybe down about it and thinking, I have to do this massive exercise regime. Like you said, you have to be regular at it. You have to, to do it regularly every week and then find spots where you push yourself. Like you mentioned about going for a walk and if you walk until you get tired the first time, you, you can probably do that two or three times and then push a little bit more the next time. As long as we're pushing ourselves a little bit, other than stretching, then we're getting healthy. Yes, exactly. And obviously that's, you know, I don't want you to go out and just, you know, flog yourself, right? That's not going to be fun. Probably puts you at more risk than needed, but I want you to get slightly uncomfortable. That's what I really want you to get. I'm slightly uncomfortable for that amount of time or for that amount of weight. Tom, one other thing. What, what about our hands? Because with a bike, you're, you know, obviously it's very physical, but anybody who works a clutch, some clutches are easy, some are, are harder. But when you're working a clutch off-road, if you've got your adventure bike and you're riding a technical situation, you're working your clutch a lot, the hands really need to be strong. And I guess as we get older, that's fading on us. It is. Um, I happen to carry a tennis ball actually in my tank bag. And so even throughout the winter, I'm kind of working on my grip strength. My grip strength is always being worked on when I'm in the gym and lifting heavy weights as well because, I mean, I have to pick them up and put them down. Um, so that's that's really good. Your grip strength actually correlates really well to the rest of your overall body strength. So if I can't pick up 50 you know pound weights like I used to, it probably means the rest of my body is starting to, to lose some muscle mass as well. The other benefit that I get from carrying a tennis ball in my tank bag is I can use that for something called self-myofascial release. And so some people kind of call it like a foam rolling or trigger point massage. And I can take that after a long day of sitting in the saddle and I can kind of rub that on different areas of my body. And what that essentially does is it mimics a deep tissue massage. So me, I mentioned previously, I'm a little frugal when it comes to money. So a tennis ball is pretty cheap. I throw that in my tank bag. I take it on at night. Maybe my back's a little tight. Maybe my shoulder's a little sore. I can put that right behind there. I can lay down on my sleeping mat and kind of dig in there like a mini massage. And I'll tell you what, it feels phenomenal afterwards. So just a tennis ball. That's interesting. I I thought you would have had to go and get one of these exercise things. Tennis balls are inexpensive and, and easy to have around. And you're just squeezing that with your hand, just giving it as much as you can? Yep, you can squeeze that with their hand for yeah for your overall grip strength. Anything that you're grabbing to as well. They do make you know kind of high end grip strengtheners. Um, you can do different things at the gym like wrist curls, both up and down and kind of side to side to help keep those you know the clutch and throttle hand working away around. And then for for the self myofascial release portion, you know it's it's a very cheap investment to be able to do some self massage. And I guess as we get older, you know, what is it, 40, 50 years old, we're looking at where we have to pay more attention to this? Absolutely. You know, people typically think, well, you know, I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 30s. I'm at peak muscle mass. I'm at peak bone mass at that time. Um, 
you know, maybe the scale hasn't changed too much, but you know, you're losing that two to three percent of the that muscle mass year after year, and unfortunately, the scale probably isn't changing because you're gaining body fat. So, you know, I might not notice it too much when I see those numbers, but my composition is changing. You did a, an article on um, activity tracking. I know you tried out um, a bunch of different modules. Can you just tell us what activity tracking is? Sure. So activity tracking is it's, it's a whole new wave of devices that essentially takes a look at how much we move. So a lot of people are going to be familiar with like a Fitbit or a Jawbone, the new Apple Watch. Those are all going to take a look at how much movement you have throughout the day and then kind of give you a score. And for, for most people, it's going to help kind of motivate you to get off the couch and get moving. Yeah, I, that's what got me with this. Before when I've looked at these, I've never tried one myself, but before when I've looked at these, I've always thought it's just a little too far. You know, I'm, I'm not into it that much uh, that I want to pay that much attention. But I think it's the motivation, isn't it? It's to, it's to have something track. And, and uh, I think you said in one of your articles, you said often people uh, have an imaginary uh, or, a, or a vision of themselves being much fitter than what they actually are, or getting much more exercise than what they actually get. Yeah, the National Cancer Institute actually did a study a couple years ago, and they asked people, like, how much do you move around the day? Do you think that you get enough exercise? And they actually asked them, do you get the recommendations from the the, uh, ACSM, which is the American College of Sports Medicine? And and that's a threshold of 150 minutes of modern intensity exercise per week and about 30 to, to, to 60 minutes of vigorous exercise as well as doing some strength training. And to, to cut a long story short, 48% of the people said, yes, I get enough exercise. I get the, at least the minimum recommendations from the ACSM. And then they put some fancy accelerometers on them, and they found that less than 5% of those people actually got that exercise in. So if you're not tracking it, you, I mean, you might mentally tell yourself, oh, I think I'm doing really well, but you have no marker to know. So how long do you think you'll be able to ride your motorcycle? Well, like I said before, I'm planning to ride when I'm 100 years old. And so I'm, I'm making sure that I'm getting my cardiovascular and making sure I'm getting my flexibility and my mobility in, and I'm for sure working on those muscles and my resistance training. And how old will your bike be when you're 100? That's a good question. So <laughs> 95 and 30 right now. <laughs> <laughs> Got about 70 more years. Jeez, so. uh, I mean, I know they're really good bikes, but I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, the, the motto with the BMW, a lot of people is ride them or grind them to dust. Um, I, yeah. But um, I don't, I'm not sure if you're going to have dust or you're going to have a bike at that point. Yeah, I think it'll be, well, probably dust to dust. <laughs> I will say last year I, I stopped into a motorcycle dealership to get my, and they'll remain unnamed, but I, I asked them, you know, do they have these particular tires for my, you know, 95K75S? And the guy kind of got chatting with me and stuff. And then he he said, oh, you know, nobody really rides those old things anymore. (laughs) And I said, I said, well, you know, this is only a 95. It came from a 1982 motorcycle. So the leaps in technology were were huge for me. And that kind of, you know, kind of sunk my heart a little bit when he said nobody rides those old things anymore. I don't think a 95 is all that old. Do you have ABS brakes (laughs) on it? I've got ABS, I've got fuel injection, I'm sitting, I'm sitting pretty. Well, Tom, thank you very much. Now, from here, when I get up from the studio right now, I have to go out and get some exercise. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.
I've been speaking with Tom Rick, who is an exercise specialist at the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. You can find out more about Tom by visiting his website, trainwithtom.tumblr.com. And remember, Tom in this case is spelled T-H-O-M. You can also visit our website and check the show notes for this episode. Now, what you didn't hear there on the interview with Tom Rick is that he rides with an Aerostitch riding suit. And of course, you know, Aerostitch is one of our show sponsors. And I want to talk about Aerostitch for just a minute here. If you haven't done it already, go to the website and download their catalog. Their website, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Of course, make sure you use the ARR. And that way they know that it's coming from Adventure Rider Radio. But go to their website and download their catalog. It's free to download, or you can order the paper version. Depends on what kind of a person you are, whether you like the paper one. It is nice to have that paper catalog in your hand to look through. Loads of stuff in it. But I was going to mention that, don't forget, this company's been around for 33 years and has been making riding suits of all different types. All kinds of people have worn them around the world. It truly is sort of a suit that you buy for for life. And one of the ways you can tell is if you just drop by their website, you're going to see that they have all their riding suits on there that they sell. But then on the same listing for the riding suits, they've got suit accessories, armor that you can get for it extra, uh, suit storage and repair, repellents and sealants. They really take care of you once you've bought the suit. It's not like they're trying to sell you another suit. They know you're going to keep the suit for a long time because it's very high quality. So it's nice to know that once you bought the suit, that they're there for you to service it, repair it, and take care of you down the road. That's important, I think, as far as the company goes. The riders themselves drop on their website as well and look at the vlog they have going right now where they're riding an electric motorcycle through the winter, testing their gear and testing the electric bike. It takes dedication to do that, as I've said before, and these guys are riders. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're talking with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And coming up in just a minute, we have our third episode of our Rider Skills segment with Brett Tax, professional rider trainer from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And Brett's going to help us tackle obstacles. Stick around. So if you've got giant loop bags on your motorcycle and you're headed to Antarctica, you might want to contact them because I think Antarctica is the only continent that hasn't been ridden on with giant loop bags. This is a company that's going places. And why are they going places? Because they make great products. Simple as that. And as you know, the only companies we have on this show are companies that we want to get behind, that we feel make great products. Giant Loop is certainly one of those. They design their products by, well, first out of, out of a necessity, out of need. That's how they started the company. They designed it wanting bags that were durable for their own riding so they could go fast on dual sport bikes. And they've expanded from there. And boy, are they expanding because they're even making bags for snowmobiles now amazing systems. In 2016, they're going to start adding complete gear packages, um, including ultra lightweight, compact shelter systems and other camping equipment to their website. Drop by, check it out, giantloopmoto.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And I'll give you one more, one step further. If you put in the code ARR when you're purchasing, you're going to get free shipping in the United States. Make sure you let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Once again, we're back with Brett Tax from PSSOR, or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And today we're looking at obstacles. Brett, great to have you back. I'm glad to be back. Well, what have we covered up till now? Well, we started off with talking about traction management or detecting 
threshold as far as traction goes. And then we talked about the weightless rider. And we spent a lot of time talking about getting up on the bike and how we shift our weight, how that changes traction dynamics of the bike, and how it neutralizes the forces that come after us. Those are the foundations for the things that I'd like to talk about today, which is talking about obstacles that we might encounter on the on the trail. So these things that we've learned up till now sort of brought us up to this point of dealing with obstacles. Now, I was out for a ride today, for instance, and it's rainy and it's wet here on the coast. And I, I encountered mud and rocks and logs that I had to go over, all of these things. So it's very appropriate for me today. Can we start with logs and, and talk about how we approach logs? I think logs are one of those that a lot of people get very nervous about. And it's it's a very easy one to kind of describe and a great one to practice with that will help us develop into some of these other obstacles. So I think that's a great place to start today. Okay. So as we're coming up, we see a log down the trail. What do we do? Well, first thing is size it up. Decide if you can actually accomplish this, that the the motorcycle you're riding can make it over that you have the skills and the competence to make it over, that there's enough traction just as you approach it so that you can actually uh, accelerate and get enough momentum to clear it. Uh, And if you need to, stop the bike, walk up to it, take a look, make sure the log isn't slick, make sure that the landing area on the other side of the log is safe. A lot of times people come off these logs on the other side and they get a little blip of throttle and they sort of launch themselves off into the bushes or into a ditch or worse yet, into a tree. And so you definitely want to make sure that you have a good landing spot or at least know where you're going to land as you come up up and over that obstacle. So clearly with this, and I guess with all of our skills, we want to start off small and work up from there. Um, This is one of those things that I think uh, would be the best to take with a a professional like yourself to to show people, because I think it's probably something you'd pick up so much easier if you have someone who can show you how to do it and then mimic it. But doing it on on our show here, we're going to start off real small and work our way up. So we stop, we look at the log, we assess it, we figure it's okay to go over. What are some of the considerations that we should think of when it comes to size? Well, size size does matter, both with the log and also with the bike that you have. So the two considerations, the main considerations as far as the whether the bike can clear the obstacle is uh, considering what kind of wheel sizes you're running and what kind of ground clearance you have. Uh, the other things such as uh, traction may be determined based on your your tires. So if I'm approaching a log and I have a street bias tire, I may have a very high amount of traction, so it doesn't make a big deal. But if it's raining like it is today and you're on that same tire, that obstacle may or may not be something I want to attempt because as I accelerate to get the bike to get up and over it, I may end up just launching myself directly into it. And, uh, and then also just making sure I square up on this, that I tee up on the log and try to come to it as close to 90 degrees as possible, especially on these big, heavy adventure bikes. Yeah, that's one thing that you, you notice very quickly with slippery logs. It doesn't take much of an angle to put you down as you come up and you bump that front tire against it. But before we get to the actual going over the log, you mentioned about the, the size of the, the tire on the front of the bike. How does that make a difference? Well, the more off-road focused or off-road dedicated tires will run a 21-inch rim. And those are the really tall, skinny tires. You see them on the F800 GS and the new uh, Africa Twin, the the old KTM 990 and, and some of the new nine or 1190s. And that, that's the same exact tire size or dimension as 
a pure dedicated dirt bike. So my WR 450 or a KTM 350, whatever you ride, they run that same size. The only difference is a little slight difference in the width of the rim, but the height is the same. As you kind of step down towards more street-focused bikes like the large 1200 GSs and the Super Tenere's, the V-Stroms, they have a 19-inch. And they're trying to compensate. So they handle a little nicer on the road, like a dedicated street bike, but they still have a large enough wheel circumference to still get over obstacles like the the taller 21-inch wheels. Okay, so when we're approaching uh, the obstacle on the log, how do we know if it's too big? One is take a look at the axle on the wheel itself. If the rolling point of the obstacle that you're rolling over and the rolling point of your wheel don't line up, you can ride over it with no technique whatsoever. It may not be pretty, may not be comfortable, but you'll make it to the other side. And what that just means is that as long as the axle's over the top of that rounded point on the log, so you can go over a, a fairly large log without realizing it, as long as you come into it and you just let the wheel actually roll up and over. Where that gets us in trouble if we don't have technique is we can be thrown back on the log. And we talked about body position before. So you need to anticipate those extra forces. We get thrown back. We add a little whiskey throttle and and the bike takes off without us. The second thing is the, the ground clearance on the skid plate. So some of these bikes now have a fairly minimal ground clearance and they're being sold as adventure bikes. The, at the motorcycle show in Vancouver, I was just there. Honda has their new 700 and 500s out that are being sold dressed up as adventure bikes and they have knobbies on them and and adventure looking bags but they have just a street bike type clearance these are bikes with maybe five inches of ground clearance on them so it's very small so the wheels may make it over but the skid plate may impact that obstacle or the log and is there any trouble with dragging the skid plate across the log uh, none whatsoever. That's uh, something you can expect to do. What matters is if you don't have enough momentum and you wedge yourself onto the log and you high center. We can go over logs that are higher than the ground clearance of the bike. And part of that's the technique that we use. That's using the throttle appropriately. You'd mentioned once before about uh, the skid plates being flat. Talk about that. When they manufacture these skid plates, mostly the aftermarket uh, manufacturers, they have a rail on the bottom where they sort of like like uh, divot it so that they kind of stick out. They have less surface area. So when they actually come up onto these obstacles, they slide over much easier. Some of the other skid plates are just purely flat, which is a much greater surface area. What really gets us in trouble as we're impacting these is if they're not even. So if one side is higher than the other side, if you get wedged up on top of it, the bike can kind of roll over to try to level off and actually tip over. As long as it's square or level or railed and even surface on both sides, then you're you're going to be okay as long as you have the momentum to get up and over it. Okay, so we're all set up now. We think we're going to go over this log. How do we do it? All right. So you've stopped yourself far enough back so you can get up on momentum as you uh, get up and stable on the bike. The first thing you want to do is get up on those pegs, just like we talked about in the last show, and neutralize the weight, knowing that if you come up to this log, it's going to push you in a, in a different direction. Approach it 90 degrees. You'll come in fairly slow because you have a very large bike that's going to impact it, and you don't want to bottom out your suspension. And just before you get there, you'll shift your weight back. And you don't want to do it too early. You want to have it so as you move your body back on the bike, you actually feel the suspension unload. You can practice this if you actually have somebody hold your bike. And you can shift your weight back, and you'll feel the suspension extend. 
And that's the sort of movement we want just before we impact this log because you're extending it. So as the front tire impacts and compresses the suspension, there's more travel available. Does that make sense? Yeah, so we're taking the weight off of the front wheel. Exactly, and actually making your suspension longer. The second thing I want to do is I want to make sure I extend the rear suspension as well. And one of the common myths we have is when we roll on the throttle, a lot of people believe that the back end squats. It's a very common uh, misnomer. And the reality is, is when you roll on the throttle, not only does the front end raise up in the air, but the back end also raises up in the air. And part of that's because the back wheel is trying to drive faster than the rest of the motorcycle, and it pivots up on that swing arm. So when you roll that on, it actually raises the, the skid plate farther from the ground and gives you not only momentum to get over the log, but also more ground clearance to do it. And you'll do that just before the front tire impacts. So as you roll on, you'll shift your weight back. That raises the front end of the bike. The front end comes up and over. And then what I do is I do what we talked about in the very first uh, segment with throttle control and traction is I'll, I'll feather the power back just slightly so as the back tire impacts, the momentum allows me to carry over the log, but I'm not hitting it and spinning the back tire on, on it, especially if it's a wet log. So this is where we're using what we've learned up till now. We're keeping our traction intact and we're being the weightless rider. It, absolutely. And and you're not not just being weightless, but also using weight to an advantage. And again, as I approach, I shift back. That raises the back end. But as the back comes up to impact, I move or collapse. It's almost like I collapse with my knees. It's not even a move forward. It's kind of a diagonal as if I'm trying to drive my pelvis towards my front axle. And what's happening is as I'm dropping towards the front axle, the bike is actually moving up in the air towards me. That's how I remove my weight from the motorcycle. That's the weightless rider effect that we have. And then as the back tire comes up, I shift my weight farther back and, and away I go. And the indicator that you're, you're giving it too much gas would often be the bike sliding sideways. Uh, if you spin the tire just before going over it, you gave it too much gas. So you want to only give enough throttle or enough power to the back wheel to cause the extension of the, the suspension. If you're spinning the back tire as you approach your obstacle, it was too much. The second thing is exactly that, is the back tire impacts. You should only have enough power for the back wheel to roll up and over. You just want to keep enough to keep the momentum going. If you chop the power too early, then once the front end comes down, both ends will compress and you'll end up high centering on your skid plate. Okay, well, I'm glad you said that because I've seen that happen a lot. And of course, we've all experienced it. What do you do when you are high-centered? You've, you've made your approach, you've done everything you can to do this going over the log properly, but you find yourself high-centered in the log. Well, I usually just crawl off the bike, sit on the side of the trail, and cry a lot. Um, <laughs> and then once I wipe my tears clear, then I, I reconsider why I, why I did that, because I should know better. But if you do high-center, one of the techniques that works very well, and this is much easier learned on a dirt bike or a small bike than it is a, a big bike, but what you actually do is move you're, while you're sitting on the bike. So you're high centered and you're on your pegs and you're, you're shaking your head going, what just happened here? But if you reach down and put your feet on the log itself, you can grab the handlebars and you pull the motorcycle back until the front tire is back up against the log. And what you're doing is creating enough room for the back tire to get drive and run into the log. So we're, we're pulling back. We put weight on the back wheel, which now gives it traction. If you can actually pull and roll the front of the bike slightly up onto the log, you're even better. 
And then using the skills we learned about uh, the very first time we talked with traction management, I'm going to give enough power to get the bike to start to launch forward. And that front end's already up and light. The back end has maximum traction. And then I drive all the way up and the back wheel rolls up and over. If I hit the log and it starts to spin, then my timing's off. If it's spinning before my motorcycle rolls forward, then my timing's off. And that's, again, why training is such a uh, such a huge benefit for people because that timing can be very, very difficult to master on your own. Uh, but it's so critical to do. And and it's and dirt bikers have the same issue. I see it all the time with these, these dirt bikes stuck up on logs and you'll go up and ride up and pass them without a problem. They just don't know how to manage the traction, how to load that back tire just by pulling the bike back towards them and, and using the log to pull it up towards them. So I guess if you're with an instructor, it's a little bit easier for the instructor to see exactly what you're doing rather than you when you're on the bike, you've got the adrenaline, you're trying to deal with the whole thing. I mean, I remember, um, I think it was the last episode we talked about um, you saying that you videotape yourself to see what position you're in and you're not even really aware of it until you see it afterwards. It is a lot more obvious when you can see it and watch it. But again, if you're just with a bunch of buddies and you're trying to even coach each other, if you don't know what it looks like and don't know how to identify, it can be pretty hard to to work out. And this particular skill set that we're we're talking about is one of the things that when we do our our training expeditions up through the Cascade Mountains of Washington, it's not uncommon for us to have a few riders that get caught up on some of the routes when we get up into the four by four sections of that particular route. And sometimes just having somebody there to go, well, stop it, calm down, let's think through this, and walk them step by step, they go right up and over it. But when you're in the midst of it as a rider and you're trying to remember all the steps and you're, you may or may not be embarrassed about it depending on your, your personality, but you're trying to remember all these steps and it's so overwhelming that if somebody can just go, hold it, let's do this together, and we walk through each step or even hang ourselves up and then demonstrate how to get up and over it because we don't want to just get people through it. We want to teach them to get through it on their own. It's a tremendous advantage and we refer to those as lessons of opportunity. Um, which means students provide us the opportunity to teach them something. Now, does that cover everything we need to know about, at least in this forum, for going over a log? The, the one other thing I would definitely like to keep in mind is um, reducing that impact when we come up to the log. And this is very, very important. The bigger the obstacle, the slower the approach. And this is something that I see very common. We, we learn on a small two by four, the technique, and then we work to a four by four, and then maybe an eight inch log and then a 12 inch log. And it seems that the larger the obstacle that often riders think that they have to go faster to get over them. And the technique is exactly the same. And the reality is, is the bigger the obstacle, the slower the approach. If it's a, if it's the twig, we don't slow down. If it's uh, five feet tall, we stop. <laughs> so there, there is a range in here, and it's very important that people realize that. The other thing, these are big bikes, and there's a lot of weight behind them and a lot of momentum. And you hear a lot about pinch flats and bent rims and damaged suspension, and a lot of this just has to do with this, this heavy impact. The slower speeds will help drop that impact, becoming the weightless rider, and allowing your legs to collapse when the front tire impacts will also reduce that, that uh, possibility of damage or a flat tire. And that's part of what you need to come out of this with is just knowing how to protect your bike and yourself from injury or damage. So now let's talk about rocks. Oh, I love rocks. Big rocks, little rocks, sand rocks, boulders. 
I love rocks. They are so much fun. So what kind of rocks do we want to talk about? The big ones or the little ones? Let's just start off by talking about dealing with the pile of rocks that you'll find on a on a dirt road that they put down, the, the type of large stones that, that tend to throw people off when they ride into them. Oh, so these are uh, like construction rock, and it, we'll just start with that. And these are about fist-sized rocks. Are those the ones we're talking about? Sure, yeah. Okay. So a lot of times they'll put these out in logging areas. Uh, that way, when the big trucks move in and out of the logging areas or the big tractors, they don't they don't muck it up and turn it into mud. But these these fist-sized rocks can often be put out into the road. Or if you're going up hills, they have a tendency to roll down and kind of collect. And of course, they can get bit as large as uh, you know, kind of the nickname baby heads, which means rocks that are about that size. And those rocks. They, the biggest thing with those is they kick around a lot. They move quite a bit when you're coming over. And I'm assuming that we're square straight up. We're not leaned over as we go over these. And this is that whole weightless rider thing. You're not going to hit really big impacts. So it's not like the log where I have to be really slow and careful as I hit each one. But I do want to get up on those pegs like we spoke about last time so I can lighten it up and the bike can self-correct. So when it the front end tire kicks to the left or the right, that the rake and trail of the motorcycle self-corrects, that it puts the wheel going uh, back in the same direction we we want to go. Also being up on those pegs, as we discussed last time, it means that if the bike tilts left or right, that I can let the bike move free underneath me and then my weight's not part of the mass. That means it's less likely to, to have so much momentum that it actually throws us back down. So body position is, is one of the keys as we go over that and staying relaxed and letting the handlebars move left and right. That's going to happen. The other side is those size rocks and larger have a tendency to be very difficult to manage traction and throttle. And what that means is when I hit those rocks, sometimes as I'm I'm applying the throttle, it'll catch them and it kind of spits them out the back. And then my back wheel's up in the air and it starts spinning faster. And when it hits the ground, it just starts spitting and kicking all over the place. So when you do this, it's we want to get back into using those two fingers on the clutch and two fingers on the on the throttle where you're riding. So those we can use what I refer to as a gray zone or that that area where your brakes aren't fully applied or fully you know released and where the clutch isn't fully out and fully in. So as I come over these rocks and you feel it start to get count, you can squeeze the clutch just slightly. Don't disengage, but just pull it in just enough to reduce wheel spin. So as it hits the ground, it matches the momentum of the bike. And you're basically becoming a, a traction control unit for the bike. That's how traction control works. It detects slip. It reduces power to the wheel. The wheel hooks back up and it continues. But electronic traction control has a very difficult time in those conditions with that quick of a change. And they still can't outperform a well-trained human or a, you know, a pilot on the motorcycle. And that's something that we have to do is make sure that we're so comfortable in that gray zone or that middle friction zone or whatever we refer to that as where we're slipping the clutch, that when we feel those slippage, we can decrease power and we can put power back on so we don't lose total momentum. Because if we just pull the clutch in, then we lose momentum, the bike the weight of the bike shifts forward, it changes the traction dynamics, and sometimes we find ourselves dead in the water or laying on our side. Okay, so that's the the smaller rocks. How about as we get into rocks that are obstacles? So those single rocks or, or multiple rocks that you run into on a trail, they're not going anywhere, but we have to get up and over them, around them. Sometimes they can be slippery, other times not. These I enjoy more than the fist size ones. The fist size ones roll all over the place. So it, it can be very unnerving as this bike is kicking all over. The larger ones that are more planted, the boulders, those are nice because you can predict the traction. 
whether it's slippery or whether it's dry and has a high level of traction really doesn't matter as much. It's predictable. I know what's going to happen. And that's that's a key. And, and a lot of times we end up going places, we'll avoid the little rocks in the middle of a trail, and we'll go up on the big rocks on the edge of the trail. And a lot of people are, yeah, but I don't like the big rocks. Yeah, but the big rocks don't move. The small ones do. The other thing is strategy as far as how you hit those. So you can look for flat surfaces and look for what I've referred to as the V. And this is a strategy we use not only in the large rocks, but also in logs or um, rooted areas where there are tree roots. And I know that if I put my tire in the bottom of a V, it's less likely to slip left or right. I know where the tire is going to stay or stick. I crossed a log today that was like that. Somebody had chopped it by hand. They'd made a V and it had flopped down. And that's what I aimed for. And that was just the reason I aimed for it there was because I figured the wheel's going to stick in that and go over. And I guess I'd use the same method for going over a rock. Yeah, and that's exactly the same strategy. And so many of these skills are just repackaged and applied in a new a new situation or for a new um, environment. And yeah, that, that V strategy is, is really a, a key aspect of this because instead of being along, if these are large rocks with Vs in them, you have the same approach strategy that we just talked about with going over a log, except now we're aiming for the low point or the V mark. And that may actually be a better choice than three or four feet to the left where there's a lot of these fist-sized rocks that are much less predictable and may actually kick you around more, have more traction issues as far as drive and getting up and over and through things. So all the obstacles we're going over, we're using the same basic strategies, as you said, when we're coming up. We're concerned about our traction. We're concerned about the the height of the obstacle. Can we make it over and our ground clearance and the angle at which we're taking it? And of course, we're aiming for the Vs. It all filters down to the same starting point. And that's why we started there two two series ago where we talked about traction management. That's one of the keys here. If I'm spitting rocks, I can't go over these. And if I can't control my traction well, I can't go over a log well. We talked last time about being the weightless rider because I reduce impact and I go over this, whether it's a log, a rock. As uh, we get into talking about water crossings or sand, these same elements are going to come into play every single time. Okay, so now we get to the slippery stuff, the the stuff that makes the hair stand up on everyone's neck. Mud, it's not only slippery, difficult to get through, but there's stuff in the mud that tends to throw you off, like roots and rocks. Yeah, and and mud and roots and rocks are are two different obstacles, but like you said, a lot of times the mud can camouflage that rock or that root underneath it. So let's just attack the mud to start with and and try to break these down to more bite-sized pieces. Mud itself is less of a concern than many people make it out to be. And the reason is when people see mud, their natural reactions amplify the challenges of it. And our natural reaction when we see mud is to drop significant speed, which may or may not be a good choice. I'm not saying it's not a good choice. But we drop to the seat, we throw our feet out, and then we try to uh, muscle the bike through. The problem is, as soon as your feet come off of the bike, you raise the center of mass of the bike and the rider combination. You also put your feet out where they can be injured, and you have less control of the motorcycle. So those those reactions aren't necessarily what we want to do. Also, dropping the throttle means that a lot of times we pitch forward and we put more load on the front. And in a mud situation, I want the front end kind of light. 
And that's also what helps us get through some of these unseen obstacles, the, the things that might be hidden underneath the mud, is we want that front end light. We don't want it heavy where it plows into them. So how do we know how fast we should approach the mud? Some of it may just be how much standing water is around it and how deep the tracks are. And that's a, a pretty good way to read this. And again, depending on how good your vision is, it depends how fast you can pick up this information. But if I see that the mud has deep tire tracks in it and I can't see the track marks, chances are it's pretty sloppy and it might be pretty deep. And if it goes into a large puddle, then that also could be an indication of some very deep mud. If I see the mud and it's more surface and I can see the tracks of the tires, it's probably not going to be quite as slippery and certainly not as deep. So the first thing is trying to determine, is this a slick um, surface, or is this a deep uh, section of mud, almost like a rut that I'm going to be dealing with? The, the rut is a, a very good thing to talk about. But before we do that, Brett, actually, maybe we should talk about depth, because um, when you're approaching this, you were mentioning about uh, being able to look down and, and see the bottom of it. When do we get off the bike and check for depth? Anytime I have a question, anytime that I feel myself get a little nervous about an obstacle, that's a good time to stop at a distance and walk up to it and and kind of poke things around. And, and whether I go up and I'm poking a stick in the mud or whether I walk up to it, that's a really good way. And, and I had a great lesson about this down in Mexico a few years back. I was riding with a riding partner and they had had torrential rains and we came up and this was in Mexico, what they considered a road. And it turned out to this big flat plain with this little bit of a stream running through the middle of it. And I could see very deep mud all the way through. And I wasn't exactly sure how to get through this. So my, my riding partner at the time gets off his bike and he rides out there and he pokes around a little bit. And he points to the fence to the far side is maybe a uh, 50 meters over from him. So it's a fair distance. And I'm like, okay, well, that looks more flat. So I turn my bike, head that direction, and end up just being sunk all the way past the axles and and all the way up past the skid plate. And we ended up having to pull out ropes and shovels and everything else to dig my bike out of this as it's it's sinking into the abyss. And he didn't walk over there. He had walked out to the one portion and said, well, this is money. That looks flat. And he pointed me in that direction, but never walked out there. It looked good from a distance. But once you got out there, you realized it was really not a very good choice. So always check when in, in doubt. And some of the other indicators can be the tracks that you see from the traffic before you. You see a bunch of bike tracks, you see four-wheel drive tracks. They're indicators of things that have been through there and problems that they may have had. Big four-by-fours, uh, naturally huge grooves, right? Um, and then motorcycles may give you other indications. It is. And one of the few advantages we have on a motorcycle is that we can pick very small portions of road. We only need a couple of inches of good dirt to make it around it. So when we look at these huge areas of mud and and deep, you know, missing cars and snorkels up in the air from the drivers trying to swim across to their vehicle or whatever it is we see, the truth is if I look to the left or the right of the road or a large puddle, often there's a very nice piece of dirt running right along the rim of wherever that mud or dirt is, or I can ride up on the center where the, the trucks may dig down trenches on the left and right. I can ride right down the middle where they they normally would have their axles or their, their differentials cross over. Or I may actually be able to ride off the road to the left or right and actually get up on a bank and go around, even on the large bikes. When we're crossing the ruts, there's muddy ruts there that we are not crossing when we're going along the muddy ruts and we're trying to stay on top. What are some tips to keep ourselves from falling into them? 
or should we fall into them? Don't look. <laughs> don't don't look. That at the sounds rut. counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, it's very difficult to do. It, it sounds easy. Hey, don't look at the rut. You'll run into the rut. Don't look at the rock. You'll hit the rock. And and many of us have discovered that. And if we don't, and we go test it, we'll discover that we're very good at targeting things and hitting them. But it's difficult to get up on that rut and not look down left or right and to stay relaxed and allow the bike to track. The more I tense up on the handlebars, the more the bike veers left and right as that front tire naturally oscillates. That means I need a wider patch of earth to continue into a straight line. So I have to stay very relaxed. And again, keeping the eyes up, we naturally look for hazards. We, and if you think about this through evolution, when you're out in the woods, our instinct, if something's trying to eat us, is to not take your eyes off of it. You always want to know where that is. And of course, if we're on the other side of the food chain, we don't want to take our eyes off our food. So we're, we're very trained and we're very developed to keep targeted on dangers and obstacles and things of interest. But in this situation, what we have to do is find something in the distance. Look where you want to end up, not where you don't want to end up. The other aspect of this is when you come into mud is, again, that power management aspect. So once you get into the mud, sometimes there's not a lot of traction. And and with the big bikes and with the limited traction, momentum can often be our friend. And this is where coming in too slow can be a real issue because you don't have enough traction to push through it. And when you get into it, if you start feel slippage, if you're not very good about just trimming enough throttle to, to regain traction, but you cut throttle completely and pull the clutch in and you come to a stop, you're stuck. So you have to be able to figure out, okay, I need enough momentum to get to the other side and just enough power to push me all the way through. Again, up on the pegs, stay light. Um, I don't know if we talked too much. Uh, for those that didn't hear about the, the how to stand up on the bike is to realize that when you stand on the pegs, you actually shift the, the weight of the ride or the bike combination down to the foot pegs. When you drop to the seat, you raise it so it's at your derriere instead of down at your feet. And that makes a big difference on how that bike handles and reacts in the mud. So being up on the pegs, don't come off the pegs unless unless you're bailing for the most part. Now, would it be reasonable to uh, adjust your throttle as you're going through? You're giving a little more until it starts to spin, then you let off a little bit to get more traction? Once it spins, it's a lot harder to regain traction. And that's because once it spins, you've already packed the tires and you've polished the ground, and it's a lot harder to pick that back up. That's also where running too slow can be an issue. If you run the slower you go, the easier it is for mud to pack up. And if you have a little bit of momentum, it can sling the mud out of the trail or out of the tread itself and actually provide a little more tread. And there's a fine balance between too fast we're in trouble and too slow and we're stuck. Now, what about confidence? Confidence comes mm-hmm. into this as well. If you don't have the confidence when you go into it in yourself and your skills, even though you may know that you can do it, if you're not real confident, you're going to end up putting your feet down and you're stuck. If you don't think you can do it, you're not going to make it through. And that's where you were talking about going across to the, the mud itself. And I, and I kind of went on talking about vision. But the other side of that is, is if you don't see yourself on the other side, if you don't visualize yourself making it all the way through, if you don't truly honestly believe in it, the chance of you succeeding go down dramatically. 
Yeah, like when you come into something and you and you um, you just sort of panic at the last second. You know you can do it, but for some reason you just hesitate. You probably yeah. don't do this. I do this. Um, I'll, I'll come into a spot and I'll just hesitate. That's when I put my foot down. I stop, and that's the worst. Well, and everybody has a threshold. It doesn't matter uh, if I'm a you know as a professional, I still have a threshold. You know, at some point something always can you know, can scare you. We, we all have different levels, but you're right. It's, and that's why we need to stop and make sure that before we go into things that we've, we've evaluated what's going on. What are the risks? Is this something I should avoid because I'm, I'm in Ecuador or is this something because I'm in my back door and with my buddies that we're all going to make an attempt at it? Is it worth the risk? And then the other side is how confident am I that I can make it through when we do training and a lot of the training we do, we try to bring people out to challenge their limits. That's what the expeditions are about. That's what our training is about, is bringing them step by step to meeting the needs of a situation where they don't currently have this, the, the skill set. They don't want to be in the middle of Columbia on a road washout, and that's the time they want to figure out if they can get up over a loose rock and loose hill to the other side. They want to be able to look at that and go, I can make it, that's not a problem, or the confidence to go, this is beyond my skill level. I'm going to turn around and go another way. So confidence is not just to go away or to make it through something, but also the confidence to say when not to do something. Okay. So now for exercises, what sort of exercises do you have set up for people to go out and, and try and practice these skills on their own? So as far as exercises go, the the obstacles are a fun one for people to practice with and pretty easy to do. And what I start off with is usually grabbing something like a two by four or four by four or or something about that diameter that they can they know they can ride over no matter what, even though they don't have any issues. Heck, you can use a curb in a driveway or you know, like a street curb if you want to. They're they're only about four inches tall, most of them. And practice this, this shifting backward and forward. That's kind of the beginning step of this whole this whole process is where to get your weight. And, and get your weight back just as you come up to it and then ride up and over it. And what I want people to really feel is, can they feel themselves cross over the obstacle? Is there drama and can they feel the impact? Or is it seamless and it doesn't feel like they went over anything whatsoever? And that's really how you can tell whether your weight shift is correct and your throttle timing is correct, is on that, that sense of impact. If it feels like you hit it hard, something's not right. If it's no drama and you don't notice it, you got it right. And that's when you can move up to something larger, five inches or six inches or eight inches. And we do that during the training. We let people graduate to more challenging obstacles when we can see that it's just not a big deal anymore, that they can't feel it, that they're not impacting it. So they're not bending rims and hurting themselves and pinch flats and all those other things that can happen that we don't like to see happen. Do you have any method for handling the crash as you're practicing this? Um, I prefer not to crash. <laughs> so one of, one of my key jobs, again, as I'm doing all this training, I'm the poor soul that gets to carry the winch and the medic kit. And so my goal is to use neither ever. And, and so this, this baby stepping, this small obstacle working to a large obstacle, this focusing on the technique and perfecting it on, on four inches before we do eight inches is really a critical step. And as long as you evolve yourself very slowly or, or develop your skills slowly and methodically, the crash is kind of a secondary thing. Because although we all like to think that we have these great plans on crashing, I'm going to tuck and roll, I'm going to ride on top of the bike or whatever it is that we believe, the truth is, is when the crashes happen, there's usually a fleeting thought that involves profanity in our mind 
uh, followed by uh, ourselves laying on the ground going, well, what happened? <laughs> you know, so the, the, usually it's not as graceful as we like to believe it can be. So the best part is let's avoid it. Let's just not not do that if we can help it. And then of course make sure we dress appropriately so that we don't get injured um, when we come off the bike. And you know we had talked about boots some time ago now, and and we haven't talked about other riding gear. But you know having the proper padding, the the, the back protectors, you know liat collars. I mean depending what level of protection you want to go to, but that's what all that's for. Is because you don't know how you're going to land. So how about an exercise for mud? Mud is kind of one of those things you have to get into. It's uh, it's it's a little harder to get into that and really. Um, mimic it without being in a real situation. So in that case, what I would say is find the mud, play in it, get used to it, but start small. Start in a place that has a loose surface, you know, where it's very low depth as far as the mud go. And it's a very short, very short distance. Maybe you're crossing over a two, three foot section of mud and then extend that longer and longer and longer until you're comfortable at distance. And then also uh, for depth. And one of the, the better ways to learn mud is actually learning in sand, which you can um, uh, which you can practice for much longer distance. You can find beaches and things like that. And we'll talk about sand. I think water crossings, and uh, maybe in the next uh, next time we talk, we could we can cover that. But the mud itself, you kind of have to get into it. But my biggest thing is don't do it. Don't do too much too fast too soon. You know, do it in small steps, or again, come out and work with uh, work with us during the early spring and early fall when we actually have lots of mud at our training facilities, or or one of the the events that we do where we actually have that that available to practice in. So I guess the the same as what you said before about um, it. it uh, you'd mentioned about being in a different country, and and of course, I think what you were leading to there was you deal with things a little bit differently depending on the risks. So when we're practicing any of this, we want to take into consideration what the risks are for the place we're at, for what we're doing, and who is with us. And that's exactly what I'm explaining. That we 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 play hard at home, so we don't have to risk when we're, when we're out and abroad. And, and again, when it comes to our training expeditions, we, we take people up in the mountains and we take them to very deliberately challenging sections of, of terrain, but they're with trained guides, trained instructors. We have medic kits, we have, um, extrication equipment. If they they throw their bike off the trail, which doesn't happen very often, but we're ready for it. If it does, we have a support vehicle uh, that's nearby. We have a truck that can carry all of their heavy stuff so we can unladen their bike. So we decrease their risk of injury. And that's very important because that's the place we're supposed to start is with these these safety nets with these other people around us so that as we move through our our goals of travel or whether it's difficulty and it's uh, traveling around BC or or through the US or all the way down to Argentina or, uh, or Russia, it doesn't matter. But as it becomes more critical, our skill sets are so much higher. So we, we maintain that, that same risk level. Our skills raise up. It's a riskier environment, but it ends up equaling out. I've been speaking with Brett Tax from PSSOR or Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. You can find out more about Brett and the programs they offer, and they have a lot of them, at PSSOR.com. 
Hey, if you haven't already heard it or you haven't got a chance to listen to it, ARR Raw is our new show, and it's a little bit different than the one you're listening to right now. It's roundtable discussions um, with travelers about all types of topics to do with motorcycles and travel. Regulars on the show include Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks, and myself, Jim Martin. Now, you'll have to subscribe separately, so drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and look for the link that says ARR Raw Show. Click on that, have a listen, tell us what you think. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it can inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's made in the USA, and get this, it has a lifetime warranty, which is brand new. Best Rest also makes tire changing and tire repair kits that are small enough to fit in your saddlebag, and the crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves. They know what you need when you're exploring the world visit them at cyclepump.com that's cyclepump.com Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. And I hope you got a lot from this one. I think the exercise thing is really important. Think about it. Give it some serious thought, because, you know, now is the time. Today is the day. you got to get out there. Do something. At least ride your bike. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can look at the show notes for this episode and all our episodes. And, of course, you can listen to all the episodes for free. Drop by, check them out. we got a lot of stuff on there. Special thanks to our advertisers, Max BMW, Best Rest Products, Giant Loop, and Aero Stitch. Make sure you're, anytime you're dealing with the companies, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. We'd really appreciate that because it lets them know what they're doing is working for them. Also, a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. See you next week. Oh, wait, one more thing before I go. Next week, you're not going to want to miss next week's show because we're going to have an announcement there that, well, I can't tell you anymore. It's going to be a neat announcement. It's going to be something we've never done before and something that you may be able to participate in. So don't forget, drop by next week. Be the first one to hear it here on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Tom Rick, and I'm exercising. I'm huffing and puffing while listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 